This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we will take a deeper look at the character of Jacob and share some things we've learned since our previous episodes on Jacob from 2017. Yeah, that was a long time ago. Whew. It was. We've probably learned a few things since then. <laughs> we sure have. I remember when I recorded this the first go-around, um, like I had so much angst about the Jacob and Joseph story. And man, do people get so upset about that. Man, I got a lot, I feel a lot of emails and messages. I was going to ask about that because I listened back on the episode and that's that's how we start the story of Jacob. You're like, you know, this is a character I really struggle with. And I was like, okay, I wonder if four years later you're still having that same struggle with the character or if you've learned some things that give you a different appreciation for Jacob or what so i i assume we'll get to that over the course of a couple episodes but yeah yeah absolutely and really if you would ask me you just said four years uh, if you would ask me four weeks ago i don't know if i would have really made a whole lot of whatever you want to call it progress in that regard as far as my perspective uh i think i had like settled it in my own consciousness a little bit but lo and behold i got uh rabbi david foreman's he wrote a Parashah Companion, Genesis, a Parashah Companion, recently released Exodus. I'm assuming he's going to do all five books of Torah here. Um, but I got the Genesis. Uh, I read through it. It was the best treatment of Jacob and Joseph, uh, particularly Jacob, the best treatment of Jacob. And it's just a, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 pages of material on Jacob and not like super in-depth pages, but the best treatment on Jacob I've ever I've ever read. And it was so, so helpful. Pulled a lot of the things that I have thought over time or that I have assumed are going on. But, and you know, Foreman, like, let, let me ask you this, Brent. When we think back to what are some, what's like one of the biggest principles we learned? Like way back at the beginning, we were going through Genesis. One of the things we would always ask, what was one of the questions that you remember us asking all the time back there? We always ask, what's wrong with this story? Yeah, exactly. And obviously, as you listen to my episodes back there, which we'll link in the show notes, um, if you go back and review those, like I have a lot of things that I feel like are wrong with this story. And I just hadn't run into, I don't want to call them answers, but I, I hadn't, I, I mean, I was digging. I just hadn't found anything in my in my dig yet. Um, and then lo and behold, just like we teach and just like we learn, uh, just all kinds of things came to mind. So one of the things I'm going to struggle to do is have this conversation without having it the way that Foreman does in his book, but I don't want to, I don't want to ruin. I don't, I don't want to spoil the book and the read for anybody else who might get it. I don't want to not support his work. So you need to go buy that book. You need to enjoy it. Um, and I'm going to do my best to not plagiarize it. And that means he just did a great job packaging the teaching. It was phenomenal. <laughs> Well, that is one of the things that you said in that original episode is, you know, I really struggle with this character, but what I, what I know and enjoy about this character, I've gotten from Foreman and I really lean on his teachings. And so that remains true today. <laughs> Absolutely. It does. His body of work on Torah is just so good. And it's so tied directly to the text, which is essential for me, especially as a Jesus follower. So, um, yeah, so just recommend his book. I'll try not to just go page by page through what he did. I may quote him here or there, but I'm going to try to just completely repackage what he's taught me and put it in my own words. But definitely right up front, want to give all the credit to any of the discoveries we talk about here. 
Um, in fact, you'll probably get tired of me saying Foreman says, Foreman says, but uh, nevertheless. And, and this, you might think of this as uh, maybe a slightly longer than normal summary of his material, but there's so much depth, so much material. So if you're at all interested in the character of Jacob, absolutely get this book and dig into it because there's a lot to uh, a lot to unpack and we're not going to cover everything. Yeah, absolutely. And go find his stuff on Aleph Beta. And and now he's got more and more um, colleagues that help him do teaching. So it's even more diverse. It's not just his voice. And you can just find so much good stuff on there. So we'll link that in the show notes as well. Yeah, Aleph Beta has, in the last four years, has expanded substantially, I think. Yeah, absolutely. They got a lot more people involved. That's awesome. It's excellent. And I think it's allowing Foreman to do more stuff like uh, do a little bit more writing. And his writing is just a whole different experience than his video and, and everything else he does. So. I'm excited about that. Brent, how about you take us let's jump into let's jump into Jacob right at the beginning of Jacob. Let's talk uh, Genesis 25. All right. And talk about talk about things that are weird going back to those original episodes and hearing you reading some of the passages. It's like, wait a minute. That is weird. We can't do that. Oh. So, I don't know. I don't know how that shifted. Um we just but we just days, grew up, you know. I read it, so... Yeah, we just grew up. Here we go. That's how it works. Genesis 25. This is the account of the family line of Avraham's son, Yitzhak. Avraham became the father of Yitzhak, and Yitzhak was 40 years old when he married Rivka, daughter of Betuel, the Aramean from Padan Aram, and sister of Levan the Aramean. Aramean. Man, not used to saying all these names in the Hebrew style. It's been a while. Has been. Yitzhak prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rivka became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Okay, now, right here, Brent, there... She's given this, like the Lord said to her, like who knows how that worked or what that was like, but she got a a prophetic premonition, a, a word from the Lord. God like gives her some explanation of what's going on inside her. She can feel something's like crazy and not like what in the world, what is up with these two? So he, he lets her know, you have twins, here's what's going on, here's the struggle that's taking place. Now, as far as we know, does she ever tell Yitzhak about this? As far as we know, Brent? It doesn't look like it. It definitely doesn't do it here. I'm not sure if there's any indication in any of the rest of the story that she would tell Yitzhak this. It seems like she keeps this whole thing a secret to herself, and the rabbinic perspective is that she does, that she keeps this prophecy a secret to herself. So uh, pretty interesting. And, And one wonders why or how the story would have changed but nevertheless i digress but yeah uh, she gets this word and she knows what god has told her does she second guess what she's heard has she anyway we, she's she's human like all the rest of us but it's just interesting to pause when we see that and then realize she didn't as far as we know she didn't go and tell her husband the father about who these children were and what would happen so did did she tell Isaac and he blew it off and was just like, oh, no, that's not how it's, uh, who knows? It would kind of make some sense out of why she was not speaking uh, with Yitzhak later 
concerning the blessing that she was working with Yaakov directly and kind of guiding him to do how she thought it should play out or whatever. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Take us on. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they called him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Yaakov. Yitzhak was 60 years old when Rivka gave birth to them. Okay, now interesting observation here. Uh, Esau's born, he comes out red, whole body is hairy. So they name him Esau. They being plural, and what's the assumption there, Brent? Who is they? When Rivka, verse 25, the first to come out was red. His whole body was like a hairy garment. Oh, there it is, yeah. So they, they named, named him, him who is they. So Yitzhak and Rivka. Rivka and Yitzhak, right? Both of them, right? Now, then verse 26, the next verse. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's hill. So, And then the NIV translates this in a totally different way. So he was named Jacob. The Hebrew is not nearly that clean. Uh, Foreman says that the Hebrew literally says, so he named him Jacob. There's a singular masculine reference. So they, plural, named him Esau, the assumption being mom and dad. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he named him Jacob. And the he there, the assumption would be who, Brent? Uh, that would be Yitzhak. Yitzhak. But Rivka, Foreman says, uh, kind of leaning on a bunch of rabbinic tradition, Foreman says he believes Rivka refuses to go along with this Jacob name. She doesn't like this. She's okay with the Esau name. She's not okay with the Jacob name. She's not okay with how Isaac sees this second son. And remember, she's been given this prophetic word. Like she knows some backstory that she's not sharing and nowhere in the text does she accept this Jacob name, right? So, interesting little take on that. Let's keep going. Huh. Yeah, I love Okay, I like it so far. Uh, the boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Yaakov was content to stay at home among the tents. Yitzhak, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rivka loved Yaakov. Once when Yaakov was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Yaakov, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Okay, so before we get too far away from this, let's just, that, that first paragraph there, the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. Foreman said Esau was a doer, like he even did some language word study there. He said Esau's a doer. That's who he is. He He's... and. And let's not make this about masculine, feminine. Please, 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 please. Like, let's not, like, Esau is a man. Um, no, no, no. Esau is just a particular kind of man. Esau is more of a doer, a hunter. We might call him a man's man and, like, have, like, an, a masculine, but that would just simply be almost tongue-in-cheek. That would be totally cultural. Esau is simply a doer, a hunter. And And if you see the names, you can even, like, how obvious, Brent, do you think, it is to this these two sons, how their dad feels about like how do you do you think it's relatively obvious to Esau and to Jacob how dad feels about their personalities? I I, I wonder if Esau like doesn't 
really understand Yaakov. Absolutely. Great point. Because Esau, Esau means hairy. Uh-huh. And Adom means red. There's just these very literal, like, this is what he is. I clearly understand this, and I'm going to name him in this very literal, clear way. Beautiful. Whereas Yaakov it is an idiom. It Right. It's this, like, abstracted concept of a person. I love that observation. Absolutely. Like, and there's a disconnect there that, and what I love about what you're saying is this is just human, na- like, this is just regular life. Like, it makes, yeah, there's some dysfunction here. There's a dad who understands one son. He's constantly, like, frustrated or doesn't understand the other son. Like, this is just the kind of life that any of us have had. This is the kind of families that we have experienced. This is the kind of stuff that we even experience as parents if we're parents. Or, like, yes, 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 yes. And so we're we're taking the story and we're making it very human, very like, oh, yes, I can understand this. But uh, absolutely. So... Jacob was content to stay at home. This doesn't make him feminine. This doesn't make him less of a man. It just makes him a different kind of man. Esau is a doer. Jacob is, I mean, we're not necessarily told this, but maybe he's more of a feeler. Maybe he's more of an artist. Maybe he's more of a, and you can't tell me that that's less masculine. It's just a different kind of a person. And so he ends up gravitating towards mom for natural, like, that's where he wants to be. That's the kind of personality he has. And Esau's out getting things done. And like you said, Yitzhak maybe even seems to, in the language here, understand that part. of. So we can like get pulled into the story on a dramatic level and realize that these are things that any of us have experienced in our own life. Is this the first instance of twins in the Torah? I'm, you know, I'm trying to think. It, it sure is in the family of God. Like those direct, but I'm trying to think if there's anything in genealogies. I don't think there's any mention. Who knows if the Midrash has identified it, has identified any twins in any of those genealogies? Great question, though. I mean, it's really hard to imagine that Yaakov would wouldn't have a concept of twins. But I'm just wondering if, like, you know, his first son comes out like, "Oh, look at that hairy guy, Esau. That's his name." And then another one comes out. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. what is that? Right. Sure. You know, if I, I don't know, because as we already talked about, like Rivka knew that that there were two in her womb from what the Lord said to her. But but we don't have any indication that she shared that. Yeah, it's a great point. So maybe they're being born and that's the first time he knows there's a second one. Yeah, sure. Uh, who knows? Yeah, absolutely. Great point. So so let, let's catch up where we were. Uh, Jacob's cooking some stew. And, and so you wonder how the dynamics of this relationship, like if Jacob's always felt like this, well, I'm not really a doer, but Esau's a doer. I wonder if Jacob has had to, this is total projection. We're not told this in the text, but you just wonder if Jacob's had to make his, like make his way, like survive by getting things done in a different way. I'm not really a doer, but I still have to get things done done in my life. So I've just found other ways to, not that he's a corner cutter, like I'm cutting the corner. I'm like, not necessarily that, but he's just found out like, I have to be a little bit more shrewd because it definitely seems to come out in this story. Esau comes in from the country famished. Quick, let me have some of that red stuff. I'm famished. Okay, go ahead. Yaakov replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I am about to die. Esau said, what good is the birthright to me? But Yaakov said, swear to me first. 
So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Yaakov. Then Yaakov gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. That last phrase there. So Esau despised his birthright. So this isn't just Jacob. Like, and we did that pretty well, I think, in session one when we talked about this story. This isn't just Jacob. It's not just Jacob being a, a deceiver. There's plenty of that to go around, no doubt about that. Like, he could have helped his brother. He could have been generous. He could have been compassionate. He kind of takes advantage of the situation. No denying that. But Esau, on the other hand, he he too has something. Like, he despises his birthright. Esau cares very little, apparently, about the mission of God, the legacy of the family, his involvement with that, like he's a doer, he's a hunter, he's got everything like going. But but as far as like this larger conception of what God's doing in the world, apparently just, as the verse says, just despite, like does not care. And that's probably putting it positively. That's probably being generous. He despised his birthright. Um, and that word there, despised, maybe doesn't mean quite what we hear in the English, but it's definitely a, a strong word to despise his his birthright. So just uh I wanna throw a little timeline out there which we've we've read through. Yitzhak was forty when he married Rivka. Uh-huh. Um she was childless, he prays, she becomes pregnant. But she, he was it says he was sixty when the boys were born. Yep. So then the boys grew up and I'm assuming that means some kind of uh you know bar our mitzvah situation not that that was necessarily established at that point but i i'm gonna assume that they're probably at least 15 you're probably safe there i I don't know what the midrashic tradition is i'm sure they've identified some ages at some point for these two but but you're right and they don't do bar mitzvahs but you're you're absolutely correct the concept of they've grown up they're no longer children they've grown up they have an understanding of what it means to be a firstborn what the birthright yes mean like they've they've had these conversations they understand what their role is going to be eventually. Their dad at this point is 75 or older. So, like, it's probably at least on the horizon, I would think. A- absolutely. And Jacob is totally, like, po- like he understands. Obviously, Jacob's understand He wants it. Like, he spent his whole life wanting the favor of his father. I-, I-, I wonder how much he's been thinking about it. Like, for him to respond that quickly. Sure. Like, Esau comes in, like quick let me have some of that red stew and just immediately yaakov says first some of your birthright yeah you wonder if they've even been like chatting about this pre like this is an ongoing conversation like i want this and you have it and and finally he's got him and and he kind of knows it all right let's jump to the next chapter we're going to skip a bunch let's go to the end of let's go to the very end of 26 give me the last couple verses there uh when esau was 40 years old he married Judith, daughter of Biri the Hittite, and Basamat, daughter of Elon the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Yitzhak and Rivka. And I love the subtitle here because they moved the sub- subtitle not to the beginning of chapter 27, but to the last two verses of, at least in my NIV that I'm looking at, Jacob takes Esau's blessing and they include verse 34 and 35 of chapter 26 in the next, so this is the beginning of the next story, not the wrap up of the last story, and not just the like weird segue. But whoever's doing the subtitles here in the NIV says, "Hey, this is a part of the next story." They're, I usually don't make a big deal about subtitles because I usually think they get them all wrong. But 
in this case, I think they've really done something here. But let's put that on pause for just a moment. Let's notice this. Esau takes two, takes two wives, both of them Hittites, both of them daughters of the Hitti, uh, Bieri and Basamat, and, oh, no, excuse me, Judith, Judith and Basamat. Judith's the daughter of Bieri, Basamat the daughter of Elon, and, and takes two Hitti women to be, and they were a source of grief to Isaac and Rivka. Isaac and Rivka are not a fan of the two wives, and we're not told any more backstory. We're not told if Esau knew this going into it. We're not told if he did it in spite of his parents. We're just told he takes them. And okay, okay, excellent. Let's go to the next chapter, Brent. And if we're assuming that the boys are 15 years old and now Esau is 40, so we're another 25 years later, Esau is about 100, give or take. We'll see if we get some more dates that can help us line this up as we continue reading. Sure. I have no idea. I should, probably should have read this ahead of time, but this is all just things I'm noticing as we're going through it here. We call this Bema real time. Yep. When Yitzhak was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Yitzhak said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now Rivka was listening as Yitzhak spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rivka said to her son Yaakov, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat, so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats, so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat, so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob said to Rivka, his mother, But my brother Esau is a hairy man, while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him, and would bring down a curse on myself, rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them, and brought them to his mother, and she prepared some tasty food, just the way his father liked it. Then Rivka took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son, Yaakov. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with the goatskins. Then she handed to her son, Yaakov, the tasty food and the bread she made. He went to his father and said, My father. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Yaakov said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Yitzhak asked his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Then Yitzhak said to Yaakov, Come near, so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Yaakov went close to his father Yitzhak, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Yaakov, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau? he asked. I am, he replied. Then he said, My son, bring me some of your game to eat, so that I may give you my blessing. Yaakov brought it to him, and he ate, and he brought some wine, and he drank. Then his father Yitzhak said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. When Yitzhak caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, 
Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. So I I was recently memorizing this whole story with um, my, my daughter. We were doing disciplines in the morning with my son and daughter, the three of us together. Um, and we, we were memorizing this story and it was so much fun to see my daughter, like hear this story for like the first time. Like when you grow up in the church, I don't know if I ever think back and can remember the first time I heard it. You just kind of grow up with these stories. It's been so fun to watch. Like this is the first time she's actually interacted in depth with this story. This story is so riddled with problems and I don't want to unpack them all right now. I want to let you finish, get done with this chapter. But I, we went through this, and like it's the craziest ruse, right? Like she's gonna take goat skins, and what she do? Tie them up on on Jake? Like is that? What are the chances of this thing working? Like yeah, how, putting, how could this possibly? <laughs> this this the, is so crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Because so we'll come back to that in a moment. Because there's no way that this whole ruse is gonna work. Like my daughter picked up on that. 12 years old, my daughter was like, Dad, there's no way that the goat skins tricked Yitzhak. And I loved it. We got done with memorizing every week. And she's like, but Dad, what's going to happen? Like, I got to know the rest of the story. And I was like, well, we're going to have to come back next week and memorize some more and figure out what happens. Like, it was so beautiful. But nevertheless, uh, let's just put a pin in that and come back to that here in a moment because there's there's so many problems here. Well, and even assuming the goat skins worked, he recognizes that the voice is the voice of Yaakov. Like exactly. at some point, he's not deaf. Yeah, he's blind. And at some point, you're gonna call, like, "Hey, Rivka, can you come here a second? Right. This guy's telling me he's Esau, but I'm pretty sure it's Yaakov. Is this really? Can you tell me? Right. Absolutely. And maybe get another voice in there just in case. Like, yeah. And I, I will say, I was noticing as I was reading through that, uh, and and both of them do this, so I don't necessarily want to lean too hard on this, but. Every time that Rivka is actually speaking, she never says Yaakov. She always says my son. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that kind of speaks to your earlier point. So Yes, and I do think the Hebrew insinuates that in multiple places throughout this story. Like whose son is whose? Like Esau appears to be Isaac's son in a poetic way, and Jacob is definitely her son. Okay, let's move on then. <laughs> After Yitzhak finished blessing him and Yaakov had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, My father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Yitzhak asked him, Who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn, Esau. Yitzhak trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? (laughs) As if he doesn't... (laughs) Have an idea who it might have been. Right. Uh, I ate it just before you came, and I blessed him, and indeed he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, Isn't he rightly named Yaakov? This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Yitzhak answered Esau, 
I have made him Lord over you and have made all his relatives his servants, and I have sustained him with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. His father Yitzhak answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword, and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. Esau held a grudge against Yaakov because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. When Rivka was told what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Yaakov and said to him, Your brother Esau is planning to avenge himself by killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Levan in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? Then Rivka said to Yitzhak, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Yaakov takes a wife from among the women of this land from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. Which, by the way, before we go anywhere, I just feel like as I got ready for this episode, I feel like there's something chiastic going on here. Like, remember at the end of 26, there's a statement about the wives that he took. And then what do we find here at the end of 27? Hittite women. Exactly. A statement about Hittite women, which... Uh, and then there's, did you catch all the here I am, my sons, and, and the here I am and the Hananis? I don't actually know if they're Hananis. I did not go back to actually check and see if they're Hananis. But this feels very similar to the Akeda. Like there's wives at the beginning, there's wives at the end, there's right at the beginning of the 21, here I am, he answered, my son, here I am, he answered. And then uh, right in the middle of the story, he went to his father and said, my father, that's what Yitzhak said to Avraham. Yes, my son, that's what Avraham said to Yitzhak and the Akeda. Um, are you really my son? I am. I don't know if that's the same Hanani. It should be some variation of Hanani. Um, it's the verb to be. I just feel like, man, there's a lot of parallels here that I have not looked into. But uh, I just say it out loud because maybe there's some juicy little stuff there. I, I, I don't know, but... I remember we studied the Akeda and saw so many good things. But um, Okay, huge problem. Go with me back to the very end of that, verse 45 of 27. Uh, go ahead and read, read verse 45 for us, Brent. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? What is wrong with that verse, Brent? Like, what is horribly, horribly wrong with that verse? How could Esau possibly forget? Okay, what else? Uh why would she be losing both of them today? Okay, what else? What seems just wrong about that verse? When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him. Oh, it was all at her direction. It, what you did to him? Like, wait a minute. This is all like, this was your, in fact, Jacob even tried to get out of it. Jacob was like, mom, this is not going to work. And she's like, no, do what I say. And, and then she, like, when you hold... How in the world could she be saying that? Well, Foreman in his book does this beautiful job of saying the only thing that makes sense in this story, like unless you assume, we always assume and project. We assume that she's deceitful and we project it onto her. He says, when you're reading what's being said here, it seems like she never intended to deceive Yitzhak. That's not what she's up to, which seems to fit because how about we go up? I'll give you another verse to read here, Brent. How about you read 
Give me verse 11 and 12. Yaakov said to Rivka, his mother, But my brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. Okay, I would appear to be tricking him. Foreman points this out. He doesn't say we are tricking him. His language insinuates that whatever it is that they're doing, they're not going to be tricking him. And he's afraid that his father is going to think that he's tricking him. And you're sitting there going, but wait a minute, the whole thing is a trick. The whole thing is, unless it's not. Unless what she's doing, what Rivka's doing is, now remember if we went all the way back to their names, it seems like she has this understanding of who Jacob truly is. Like you said, Yitzhak struggles to understand Jacob. But Rivka does understand Jacob, and she's out the whole time to kind of redeem this identity, this name that Yitzhak has given to Jacob. Like, I want to redeem that name. I don't believe in that name for you. You're more than that name, Jacob. And so here's what I want you to do. I just heard, I heard your father send out Esau, and he's going to bless, but you deserve a blessing too, Jacob. And your whole life, you've been kind of short-handed out of this blessing. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to send you in there to do what your father wants, and we're going to we're going to essentially make him realize that you're not the the failure that he thinks you are. You're just as much of a doer as your brother Esau. And so she wants to send him in there to finally show her husband, show his father that he's more than what he thinks he is. And the problem is Foreman says is that he's not quite ready to be everything that his mom wants him to be. So he's he's a little nervous. He doesn't want to go in there. She tries to... So what is it with the skins and the clothes of Esau? Like, what is she doing there? Because there's no way that's supposed to work. It is totally ironic that that ruse ends up working. He touches the goat skin because he was never supposed to touch the goat skin for Rivka. These were all things that Rivka was giving to Jacob to boost his self-confidence. Uh, you want to feel like a doer? You want to feel like Esau? I'll go get his clothes. Oh, is this... Is this fear going to stop you? Let me put goat skins on your arms. Like, she's not actually thinking that Yitzhak's going to touch the goat skins. She's not actually thinking that Yitzhak's going to smell the clothes. She's just simply trying to get Jacob to step up, to be confident, and be the son that she wants him to be so that he can get the blessing from his father. Not Esau's blessing, just get a blessing from his father that he, in her mind, deserves. And so she sends him in there to do this, and then in the moment, he's really not ready. So in the moment of crisis, he ends up falling to deception, which is why by the end of the story, she's essentially saying, this was not the plan. You know this wasn't the plan, but now you have done something to your brother. Now you've, and now you need to run because I'm going to lose both of you in the same day. I, I can't, you know, you need to get out of here. Just, and again, I had to repackage this because I didn't want to plagiarize Foreman. You absolutely have to get that book and just read how he puts these things together. Because all of a sudden, all the pieces of the story, this story feels totally different to me because it's not this deceiver and a deceiver and deceiving mom and deceiving son and all this deception. It's a dysfunctional family. It's a son who feels like he's not enough. It's a mom who sees the dynamic and wants the most for her son. And so she's trying to fix it, but she's actually doing too much. Because who cooks the meal? Uh, Rivka cooks it. 
Yeah. And they're trying to pass it off like it's Jacob. Like Jacob is supposed to get the game and Jacob is supposed to cook the meal and Jacob is supposed to be proving that he can be the son, but he doesn't do any of it. Like he's really not ready to be a doer. He's really not ready to be this thing that his mom's trying to prove that he is, which is, I think, a beautiful – she has beautiful intention, but she she pushes and she pushes too hard and she pushes too much and she forces him into this situation he's not prepared for and then he ends up leaning on what it appears, if you go back to the birthright, it appears he's gotten pretty good at leaning into shrewd – we'll call it deception – so this is this is like his, his his coping mechanism that he like he's used to this. This has become like a second this is his knee jerk reaction. This is what he he's used to. And he falls on that, everything unravels, and you you almost get this weird sense. Don't you get this like weird sense that there's almost something divine in this, which is weird because the goat skins actually work, which is nothing short of miraculous. Yeah. <laughs> and and he gets out of there like just in time. Like what was the phrase that was used? Like no sooner had he left his presence or. Yeah, no, where, where was that? Because I really enjoyed the way it said after Yitzhak finished blessing him and Yaakov had scarcely left his father's presence. Yeah. Like he barely like they pass in the doorway. Well, not the Esau was coming in to the to the tent immediately because he had to prepare the food. But right. Esau was like, you know, about to come over the hill and see see the tent. And right. Yaakov had gotten out of there just in time to where Esau didn't see him coming out of the tent. Like you almost get this sense like like there's something divine behind it. But let's come back to that in just a moment. But anything else you see here, Brent, before we move on? The question I had as far as uh, verse 12, what if my father touches me? So I guess that would lead me to believe that that, that is not the default. Right, because I would have thought in a in the sense of a blessing, like you're gonna call your son over to you, you're gonna put your hand on his shoulder, maybe you're gonna you know cradle his head in your hands or something. You're gonna it's gonna be like this intimate sort of thing, but apparently not. Which may have been well, it, which may have been true. I don't know. I don't know if I would assume the same thing that you assume there, and everything I know about blessings, I would assume it's intimate and physical like that. But I think Rivka's idea is that by the time they get there. By the time they get to the blessing, he will have realized that it's Jacob. Like, if there's a trick, it's really not deception. It's the fact that he's going to have this meal brought into them. He's going to smell it. He's going to sink it all. And then he's going to be confronted with the fact, oh, this isn't Esau. This is Jacob that sent this. Wow. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're not the screw up I think you are. Hey, here's your blessing. Come. And so the context by the time he does get close to him and touch him is going to be it won't be deceptive. It will be, they'll be in a different place. But yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. Yeah. So I guess the idea is like 25 years earlier, Esau comes in, says, give me some stew. And Yaakov's been thinking about this birthright the whole time. And he's just ready to go with that question. Right. So then, you know, 25 years later, he's getting all prepped up. He's got the goat skins. He's got the stew that his father loves. He walks in, he says, my father, and maybe he's expecting, uh, Yitzhak to say, Oh, great. I'm, I'm hungry. Let's, you know, bring me the stew that I asked you for. But instead he says, who is it? And then Yaakov panics, doesn't feel confident in who he is in his own skin 
And so he says, I'm Esau. Yep, exactly. That's a, that's almost the exact words that Foreman uses in his book. He's not comfortable in his own skin. He's not comfortable in his own clothes. Um, and she's mom's trying to dress him up to be somebody he's truly not. So she wants the right thing. She wants for him to be accepted for who he is, but then she doesn't help him be who he is. She tries to make him somebody else, which is what we'll end up seeing later in his story when all of a sudden he needs to come to grips with the fact of who are you? And for the first time in his story, I'm Zhaakov. That's what I've been wrestling with. That's who I've been playing this whole time. And only then will he, all these things are going to happen in steps for him. He's going to be able to take another step and another step and another step towards coming to grips with who he truly is so that he can actually be okay in his own skin. He can actually be okay with who he truly is, but he is just getting started and he is not there yet. That's good stuff. Yeah. Let's, let's jump into the next chapter here. Let's do uh, chapter 28 real quick. And then we'll, we'll do Jacob in two parts. We'll do a part two in our next episode and finish up his character study. Okay. Uh, chapter 28. So Yitzhak called for Yaakov and blessed him. Then he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padan Aram, to the house of your mother's father, Betuel. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Levon, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Avraham, so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner, the land God gave to Avraham. Then Yitzhak sent Yaakov on his way, and he went to Padan Aram, to Levan, son of Betuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rivka, who was the mother of Yaakov and Esau. Now, man, I feel like this. I feel like there's something in that sentence, the way it's all spelled out a couple different times, but um, I don't know. Anyway. Sure. Now Esau learned that Yitzhak had blessed Yaakov and had sent him to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman, and that Yaakov had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Padan Aram. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Yitzhak. So he went to Ishmael and married Mahalat, the sister of Nebaiot, and daughter of Ishmael, son of Avraham, in addition to the wives he already had. Yeah, and so now we come back around to this whole idea of wives and this weird dysfunctional family. Like, it doesn't feel like Esau knew that marrying those Canaanite women was a problem, like he married them. Apparently, nobody had prepped him. Nobody spent the time with Esau doing what they just did for Jacob. Like, they just went to Jacob and said, okay, now don't go marry any of these. And maybe they maybe they learned that as a family. Maybe they didn't know that they were supposed to, but after having Esau's two wives and having them causing them so much grief, as the text says, they wanted to make sure Jacob didn't. I don't know what it is. But here's Esau just trying to be the son of, like Esau really is the, and and we're in session six now, so we can say this. This is the prodigal son story. Like Esau really truly is the elder brother who keeps trying to do everything the right way. He's the doer. He's the doer. He's the doer. And when he finds out that he's even done things in the past that his parents didn't like, he tries to fix it. Like he's trying to do all the right things. And here's Jacob, like just doesn't have it pulled together. And really, he's been set up for this kind of failure in some ways because of just the struggles with family acceptance. But now he's on his way to Padana Ram. Esau's watching all this from a distance. Like, you can just sense 
And I'm not even trying to resolve any of this drama. I'm just trying to realize this is such a real true story. Like this is so like the families that you and I grow up in. Um, this just makes so much sense when you start to read it in, in maybe a new light of acceptance and families and children and so forth. And I almost wonder if Esau is, he's just out in the open country. He's doing his thing. He's not at home. And he happens upon these Hittite women and says, wow, I would like them to be my wives. Or I don't know. I don't know if it was at the same time or whatever. Right. But he's, he's just not with his family. He's out there. He's hunting. He's doing his own thing. And then he comes back and they're like, well, he already married them. So we can't say anything at this point, but Ooh, that was a bad, bad move there. Esau, and they're, they're distressed about this. Yes. Uh, and before we finish chapter 28 and close this part one out here today, like I want to sit with that same idea of, is there something divine happening in this story? Like it feels like God, is God really okay with this story? Is God really making things happen here? And, Let's read this next part and kind of keep that like in the back of our mind. Uh, give me the rest of chapter 28, Brent. Yaakov left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Avraham, and the God of Yitzhak. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Yaakov awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Yaakov took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Yaakov made a vow, saying, If God will... If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. All right. So it it really, you know, when you first read this, it really does appear that God is kind of behind all this. Like he's, he's in it. Like he's... It almost feels like he supports it. And yet Foreman pointed out how what God really never, what God never says and what he doesn't say. God never says, hey, Jacob, you did the right thing. Or, hey, Jacob, uh, I'm with you. And what he does say is, I'm not going to leave you. This is the promise. Uh, I am I am the Lord, God of your father Abraham, God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land which you're lying. This is just the promise that's been made to his forefathers. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You'll spread out to the west and the east, north, south. All people on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I And, and the thrust of this really seems to be, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will guard you. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done. God never says that he's, 
Like he orchestrated the events of that. He only simply tells Jacob that he's with him. Like you almost get this sense, Foreman will suggest, the story didn't have to go this way. Like this is the way that Jacob's taken it and he'll have to deal with the consequences of what he's doing with his story. But God's simply saying, I'm with you in this story. This is the story just took a turn for the worse. You're going to have to, there's going to be a price that you end up paying. There's going to be some consequences to what you've done, but I am with you and I'm not going to leave you. The promise still stands. Uh, so, it, it, and that's kind of a nice little cliffhanger spot to, uh, but God shows up in the middle of all this deceit. The blessing does not come. I, I might even suggest the blessing hardly ever comes. Uh, maybe the choosing comes, but the blessing hardly ever comes because as a reward for all the good things that, like God usually is showing up in our stories, protecting us, guarding us, blessing us even, in spite of our best efforts, in spite of the ways that we are even in that moment. Uh, the rabbis will actually connect this story to Psalm 32. I'm preaching on that this weekend. Um, there will be a, a, a connection to Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose iniquity is, is accounted for. Um, blessed is the Israelite in whom there is no deceit, uh, Psalm 32. The rabbis connected that to Jacob and said, here is Jacob. In this moment in this story, he's full of deceit. Like he just, he's on the run literally because of his deceit. And yet God shows up and blesses him. Um, and and a great a great lesson to be learned. But it doesn't necessarily mean, Foreman will say, that God approves of how we got here. It simply means that God is with us even when we got here. I, I was just looking back at Avraham when God told him that his descendants would be great in the in same sort of vision sort of sense. And then in response to that, Avraham believed God and had this credit of righteousness. And that doesn't happen here. Not, not in the same way. Not necessarily. Right. And it will be in the Avraham story, like if you remember, it's that blood path covenant. It's his moment of belief and justification, like literal theological justification. He's justified because he believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. And yet in the very next lines, he's also going to pressure God and kind of blow his story up. And God's going to respond just two paragraphs later with, you know, what's going to happen now is that your whole family is going to be lost in Egypt, slaves in Egypt, and they'll eventually come out. But you now have consequences to what's going to come out of this struggle. And so what you're seeing now in Jacob is a part of the beginning of those consequences. They are now living out the thing that God told Abraham, you've got a promise. I will make good on that promise. This is not going to be easy. And so you you see them in the middle of that right now. Yeah, Yaakov's response is this like sense of awe and and says like surely God was here. Uh he calls the place Patel. But then he like I mean I guess this is sort of you know, this is his downfall. <laughs> he makes a vow if God will do all this stuff. Exactly. Then I will blah blah blah. Yeah, he is not there yet. Like God is blessing him in the midst of somebody who is still, but now maybe, thank you, Foreman, we have some of the, Rabbi Foreman, we we have some of the background. Maybe we have some of the backstory on where this fear is rooted. It's, this is somebody who has never been enough, never matched up, 
never had his father's blessing, never had the approval of the people. And out of this is coming a really destructive, hello, like if we can't relate to this story, I don't know, I don't know how we ever relate to anything. Because this is, of course he's screwed up. Of course he has some destructive behaviors. And of course it's rooted in things that go all the way back to his very childhood. And yes, 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 this is this is simply the stories that we walk every single day. And yet here's God stepping into the story going, you ain't there yet, Jacob. You got a lot you've got to go through, but I am with you. I'm going to guard you and I'm not going to leave you. Man, do I feel so much better about Jacob than I did in 2017, Brent? So, so great. This feels pretty good. Yeah. It's a, it's a great example of learning, you know, how to live in God's blessing and, and what that process looks like, because it's not, it's not a light switch. Absolutely. Yep. So yes, that's, and we got more to talk about. Uh, let's do part two next time. All right. Sounds great. Uh, if you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB and you can find all the details about the show at BamaDiscipleship.com. Uh, be sure to sign up for the Bama messenger. So you, uh, get an email, uh, about once a month give or take. Um, and, and we let you know what's going on. We let you know where we're going to be if we're able to go anywhere, uh, and let you know about Israel trips, all that stuff. So you can, uh, go wander the the desert and see what the environment was like when Yaakov was, you know, sleeping on a rock. (laughs) Hard, hard to imagine that being particularly comfortable, but, uh, yeah, go, go explore that with us. So we would invite you to do that. And, uh, thanks for joining us on the Baymo podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.